Hey everyone, this is Lynn Bartim, and you are listening to the Apex Hour on KSUU Thunder 91.1. In this show, you get more personal time with the guests who visit Southern Utah University from all over, learning more about their stories and opinions beyond their presentations on stage. We will also give you some new music to listen to and hope to turn you on to some new sounds and new genres. You can find us here every Thursday at 3 p.m. or on the web at seu.edu slash apex. But for now, welcome to this week's show here on Thunder 91.1. All right. Well, welcome in, everyone. This is such an exciting day. We at the Apex Hour today, we're working on a or had a collaboration that I think it's been going on now for six or seven years. And this is what we call our live court session. Once a year for Apex events, we host the Utah Appeals Court on campus usually, and they hear cases and uh, go through their uh, public part of the appeals process uh, in in front of our student body. And oftentimes we also have a Q&A with our students afterwards and just do all kinds of uh, amazing things digging into what the appeals court process is. I am so excited today because we're continuing that collaboration and we have Judge David Mortensen on air with me today to talk about, yes, about the appeals court, but also about music because he has a music background as well. So welcome, Judge Mortensen. Thank you. It's good to be here. Thank you so much for taking the time. Um, to start out, I wonder if you could give just a little snapshot of your history leading up to your appointment on the Utah Appeals Court, which I think was in 2016. Yes. Um, the, the short version, obviously, I have, I have a long history like everybody else, but the short version is I went to law school and got a law degree. I practiced uh, civil law primarily um, for a little more than a decade. Um, at which point um, Governor Huntsman appointed me to the trial bench in the 4th District Court in Provo. I served there for 10 years, and then uh, Governor Herbert appointed me to the Utah Court of Appeals, as you said, in May of uh, 2016. And is that something you always kind of had your eye on, the appeals court, or is it something that evolved later and you just got excited about the possibility? A little bit of both, um, and I'll explain the, the restriction first. Um, there are two appellate courts in Utah, the Utah Court of Appeals, and then, of course, our, our uh, Court of Last Resort, the Utah Supreme Court. Right. There are five members of the Utah Supreme Court, and there are seven members of the Utah Court of Appeals. So in the state of Utah, there are 12 judges who hear appeals. So... In a way, uh, you can have aspirations to, to be in one of those positions, which obviously I had at some point, um, but to have that be your career goal would be a really bad plan. Because <laughs> since, there's, since there's only 12 people, um, your chances of getting it um, have a lot to do with the stars aligning. Part of it has to do um, with where uh, the, the current members of the court are in their lives um, our current court, both the Supreme Court and the Court of Appeals, there may be somebody retiring one person in the next couple of years. And after that, 
it very well might be a decade or longer before anybody leaves. And so that's why I mean, having that be your career plan um, would would not be a good one. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, my interest in it um, has been there since law school. I'm I'm the first uh, lawyer in my family. And so I knew very little about the law um, going into law school, but in, everybody in their first year writes an appellate brief and argues before a panel of three judges in what they call moot court, kind of a pretend court, um, but is very much like what ha- actually happens in the appellate courts. And uh, as a result of that, that piqued my interest. I actually traveled on a team um, out of state that competed with other law schools in that appellate practice. And then I did appeals as part of my private practice. Oh. Um, that all got put on the back burner when I became a trial judge, um, but I always had my eye eye on that. Yeah. But I did have a, a when I was, a, before I became a lawyer, I was clerking, doing research at a law firm during law school and had a conversation with one of the partners there. And, and we kind of distilled one day um, what we thought was the best legal job in Utah. Uh, and after a couple of hours of conversation, we are actually rock climbing at the time, but oh, wow. after, after that conversation, we determined that the best legal job in Utah was to be a judge on the Utah Court of Appeals. Yes. And, uh, 12 years later, I became a judge, and then 10 years after that, so 22, 22 years later, um, it happened. So like I said, the stars have to align. Uh, so it's not a good career plan, but if you can get the gig, it's certainly awesome. That's awesome. What a story. Can you tell us a little bit about what makes it the best job? Uh, well, first off, it has to be the best job for you, because if you like what we do, it's it's awesome, because that's all we do 24-7. If you don't like what we do, it, it would be really close to waterboarding. <laughs> um, the reason I say that is um, the majority of what appellate judges do is read and write. Right. The, the best corollary I have, and when I tell students this, they look at me like, why would you want this job? Um, we basically each write four opinions a month on the Court of Appeals. And an opinion is a published decision. Once it's published, all the other courts have to follow it. It's very thoroughly vetted and researched, and all the three judges vote on the language that's included in it. But the closest thing you'll ever experience to it outside of of uh, court is writing a term paper. So I write four large term papers every month. Now I'm into research and writing. So to me, best job in the world. But as I said, when I explain that to visiting students, they look at me like, why would anybody want to do that for a career? One of the other things that's fascinating to me about what you do is, is that you kind of get to become an expert in an incredible variety of topics and areas each week. Could you talk a little bit about how that works? Sure. Our, we have a large load of criminal cases. Um, and and that's due to the fact that uh, people have um, rights to uh, be defended by public defenders. And when they lose a trial, they have a right to have an appeal pursued if they want it. And so when people are convicted of uh, serious crimes, those usually entail serious sentences. And so they want, even if you said to a person, and I would be the same way, if I was convicted and you told me I have a 5% chance of winning, I would say, let's go do it. Right. Um, And so we see a large uh, bit of that. And so um, it's, it wouldn't be uncommon 
in any month on the Court of Appeals to have uh, a number of criminal cases uh, from everything from, you know, larceny to murder. Um, so that's pretty frequent. Um, the other side is what you said is everything under the sun, literally. If if you don't if you don't like what the Labor Commission does uh, with your workers' compensation claim, you come to the Court of Appeals. If you don't like what a district court does, you end up coming to the Court of Appeals. If you don't like what a juvenile court judge does, you come to the Court of Appeals. So there's administrative stuff. All of the under the the not under but the lower courts they all they all come uh, bring their appeals to us. So literally in the legal realm, there is almost nothing that doesn't come to the appellate courts in general, including the Supreme Court, but most of that comes to the Court of Appeals. There are things that we can't hear. Uh, we cannot, and this is by statute, the legislature says this, we can't uh, do judge discipline. That's oh. only the Supreme Court. We can't do lawyer discipline. Mm -hmm. That's only the Supreme Court. We cannot hear death penalty cases. That's only the Supreme Court. Oh. And um, other than that, um, sometimes we're the court that you have to go to, and other other times you can go to the Supreme Court, but they have the discretion to give it to us anyway. Mm -hmm. So we end up getting the first shot at at almost all appellate matters, except for those ones that I just mentioned. I should throw in their elections cases we don't hear either. Those are usually extremely time sensitive, and so the Supreme Court handles right. those. I know I've been so impressed over the years with the cases that we've been exposed to, you know, things like learning about livestock branding and what sure. goes into that, you know, and it's just, it sounds like such a learning experience all the time. Yeah. No, that's one of the best parts of the job is every case is different. Can you talk just a little bit for anybody who might not know what the process is like and, um, you know, how some cases have oral arguments, some don't, and sure. how that goes to decision and then to the written brief? You bet. In a nutshell, what most people hear about appellate decisions is either right after the trial gets done and somebody in the newspaper on TV says, we're going to appeal. And the next thing you hear is the decision. So it's it's like an article in the newspaper saying the Court of Appeals said X or more often the, the Utah Supreme Court said something or the United States Supreme Court said something. Although I have to tell you, the majority of the time, nobody pays attention to what we do except for the, the parties and, and some lawyers out there. And that's even true with the United States Supreme Court. They have controversial issues they rule on, um, but they rule on about 90 cases a year, the United States Supreme Court. My court does about uh, seven to eight hundred. Wow. And yeah, see, and you may see two or three in the newspaper, even with the U.S. Supreme Court. What do you see? Ten and on a blockbuster year, 15. But that's 15 out of 90. Most of it, they're ruling on like uh, bankruptcy rules and different things like that, that nobody really, even if they put the link on the website, nobody would click it. Right. I mean, normal people don't look at a headline <laughs> that says bankruptcy rules have been amended and think, wow, I, I really want to read that. Um, so most of the things that we do kind of fly under the radar, but the process is, like I said, somebody says, we're going to appeal this and they file a notice of appeal. And the next thing they do is they file a docketing statement, which just tells us kind of a little bit about what this appeal is about. And it lets us verify that they appealed on time. In, in almost all cases, you have basically 30 days to appeal and it's, it's out there for everybody to know. But if you file on day 31, even if you have the most meritorious appeal that ever was we will dismiss it because we don't have jurisdiction. We have jurisdiction from day one to day 30. We can hear your appeal. 
day 31, we have no power to even entertain it. Mm-hmm. So they have they file that document statement. And after we receive that, we send a, a briefing schedule to the parties saying your briefs due on this day. And then some dates run after that. And each party files what's called a brief, which is a joke because the one thing they're not is brief. <laughs> um, the, nowadays, we do a, a word limitation back in the Back in the olden days, we would uh, um, have a page limit, but it basically comes out to about 55, 60 pages wow. per brief, plus addendums. And in some cases, they ask us for permission to to be a little bit longer than that, and we <laughs> do that. We, we let them do that. But these these briefs are all you know 50 pages apiece. So then the judges, at that point, when they're all briefed, we look at the case and we decide... Uh, we think oral argument would help us on this because frankly, sometimes the appeals really aren't that difficult. And we don't think that listening to them tell us what they already wrote in their briefs is really going to help us that much. On the other hand, there's plenty of cases where we're like, you know what? Um, They may help us understand this and our questions can come sometimes um, help them see that we're not quite getting it. And uh, then they can try to guide us um, although we have to tell you, when we talk about argument back a hundred years ago in the Supreme Court, um, it was a social event and went on for hours. We uh, time people nowadays and they have 15 minutes per side. And there's no way in that 15 minutes they can go over as much as they can put down in 50 pages of writing. So, so much so much of it is dependent on the writing. Yeah. Um, so, But if they do have the oral argument, we'll hear that argument either way either right after argument or based upon the briefs, we will meet in a conference. Um, the three judges have heard the case and we'll express our opinions and take a preliminary vote. Um, the, the decision on who's going to write the opinion is made by a computer, completely random, both wow. at the Utah Court of Appeals and the, and the Utah Supreme Court, which is different than the United States Supreme Court. At, at the U.S. Supreme Court, if John Roberts, the chief justice, is in the majority, he chooses who among the other majority members are going is going to write the opinion. And uh, then whoever's the most senior judge in the minority on the dissents decides who's going to write the initial dissent, although every judge can write a separate dissent if they feel like it. So we go into it um, knowing beforehand this is the case I'm, I'm probably going to write. The great majority of cases, both in our court, the Utah Supreme Court, every United States Court of Appeals and the United States Supreme Court are either unanimous or close to unanimous. The only ones that get pressed are the controversial cases that are 5-4 or those kind of things. But most cases in most appellate courts, everybody sees it the same way. And then we we take it under advisement and we write an opinion. Um, and it usually takes anywhere from weeks to months to wow. get that. Because, because I'll write it, I'll write it up. I'm I'm I've got three or four in the hopper at this moment. And when I think they're done, I will give it to the other people who heard my case. And they will look it over and they'll vote on it. And a very common vote on our court is I concur with suggestions mm. and not not just a few. And sometimes the, the, the suggestions are you really need to rewrite half of this. <laughs> and, and the most, second most common vote in our court is uh, concur conditionally with suggestions. So now I'm making my same suggestions, but conditionally means if you don't make if you don't go with my suggestions, we have a problem here. Oh yeah. You know what I'm yeah. And then occasionally you're just like, you know what? I'm never going to go with you on this. And so I'm going to vote dissent. And then I write a separate dissent. I see. And then this is what starts 
a rather lengthy process because if one judge writes a majority and the next one writes a dissent, now we got to get that third vote. Whoever the third person goes with now becomes the majority two to one. Oh, and if right. the yeah, so if the dissent gets the third vote, so now it's now the dissent is the majority. So that that whole opinion has to be rewritten because when I first submitted, I used the word I, I dissent, I do this, but now I've got another vote. I got to go change everything to we, and maybe that judge has some input on, and I and I might have to change a couple of things to keep that judge's vote. Uh huh. Right. Um, and occasionally, this happens on every court, even the United States Supreme Court occasionally not enough judges agree. So maybe we'll have three opinions instead of just the two, just the majority and the dissent. In that case, the, we decide the case, but it but it has no precedential value because we couldn't <laughs> agree on anything. And so <laughs> uh, and wow. occasionally that happens at the Utah at the United States Supreme Court or at the Utah Supreme Court as well, that there's not really a rule that's announced because the three human minds couldn't get together. Fascinating. Uh, yeah. That's so cool. Thank you so much for sharing that. I I mean, I just find the whole process fascinating and and it's just so awesome to hear <laughs> hear how it all works. I think this is a good time for our first musical break. Right. Uh, we're going to get into more musical talk later, but in our sort of pre-interview writings, you sent me some of your favorite things. And the first thing I'm going to play is, is one of, is, is a, a piece by Handel, um, which is Ombra My Fu. And uh, tell me why you love this piece. Um, well, it's, um, it's, it's just one of the most famous pieces that uh, Handel ever wrote. And if you if you like watch Jane Austen uh, films based on on her novels, um, this will often be playing in the background. Occasionally, people even sing it. And then the recording that I sent you, um, uh, I guess we'll tell the listeners before it, they'll think it's a woman. Um, it's a countertenor, which is a man. Um, back in the day of Handel's day. It, it probably would have been a, a castrati. Yeah, uh, right. Um, and this is as close as we get because that's illegal in most of the world nowadays. Yeah. Um, but but it, it's a man. And this this recording I sent you, this guy's got breath control beyond anything. So I just, I like this tune. I like Baroque music generally as, although you know I like almost everything under the sun. Um, but this was particularly a good recording of this piece. Perfect. And the countertenor is Christopher Lowry. And so let's have a listen. And you're listening to KSUU Thunder 91.1.
All right. Well, welcome back, everyone. That, again, was one of the most famous pieces by Handel. Um, the, the way you spell the title is Ombra, O-M-B-R-A-M-A-I-Fu. That was Christopher Lowry. And it's um, from Voices of Music. Uh, and again, you're listening to KSU Thunder 91.1. I am here with Judge David Mortensen, and we are talking about how things work in, in the appeal court process in Utah, and then also about music. Uh, so welcome back, Judge. Thank you so much. Uh, it's great to be here. We I wanted to ask you a little bit about how things have been this past year. Um, we we celebrate this collaboration that we have with the appeals court and how uh, that usually involves you traveling to campus and um, being live and in person. But currently, the court is uh, not traveling at all. And, and in fact, all of your oral arguments are heard virtually and I assume have been for some time. Right. I am curious about how that has changed the process. Um, I, you know, I think we tend to think, especially with trial courts, that body language and energy in the room and sort of passion getting all uh, activated is a part of it. But I wondered how it's felt for you all and what has been different and just some observations and reflections on that. Sure. We're a little bit proud of ourselves because uh, uh, the decision was made to suspend in-person court uh, in March of 2020. And we pivoted to virtual court in 48 hours now yeah a huge um i shouldn't brag but the supreme court actually had to cancel some hearings and then um they got they got it together the next month but we we did it in two days that's mostly um bragging about the it department at the court because they they had to arrange it but we figured out how to do it um and in a lot of ways, it's not any different than what we usually do. Mm. Um, the parties still have their same time. The clock that I talked about is a separate screen now, so everybody can see the clock really well. Um, and we ask the questions, but it, it the thing it changed is the, the, the dynamic, the human dynamic. And it's interesting, you know, one of the things you talk about in trial court, sure, you're looking at body language. But you do that in in appellate courts, too. And lawyers sometimes can't help themselves. But when one guy is making the argument, the other lawyer is rolling their eyes. Right. Right. And the judges can see that Um, in the virtual world. We ask we ask the non arguing uh, attorney to mute her microphone and her camera so we can't even see. And we've actually received feedback from the lawyers that they really like that. Because they can then sit in their office and yell at the TV or whatever makes them happy while the other person's arguing and and we don't see it and doesn't make any difference. Or they can shout to a partner or a paralegal, hey, go find that thing they're talking about, you know, Um, and I can tell that they, they sometimes are using multiple monitors and they've got all sorts of data and and argument stuff helping them out, which they would never have in real court. And so some of the lawyers have actually expressed to us that they wish we wouldn't go back. Oh. Um, We're probably going to make it a hybrid 
We've learned so much. Um, I could, and it's a big deal to reschedule an appellate argument because you've got three different judges, you have all the staff, you have all the lawyers. And so in, in the past, we've taken our lives into our hands in a big snowstorm in Salt Lake for everybody to get to the courthouse and have this argument. Occasionally it starts a half an hour late because of the snow. Now we know that we have the possibility the night before when there's a, a winter storm warning just to contact everybody and say, you know what, it's on WebEx tomorrow. We're not even doing it in court. So we've got this, this capability now, or if somebody's sick, um, we have the ability to say, stay where you are. And the other thing is, like I said, the argument's 15 minutes. And so we've had cases where both lawyers are in St. George coming to argue for 15 minutes a piece in Salt Lake. And that's very pricey for their clients because their clients have to pay for them to drive up. Usually we argue in the morning, so they stay the night before in a hotel and and so their clients are out thousands of dollars for 15 minutes. Whereas if we gave them the option and they both said, you know what, we'd rather do this virtually. Um, they can do it from their offices in St. George and that clients save all that money. So it's really opened our eyes. If you had asked us to do this as a kind of, you know, thinking outside the box, we would have probably just told you all to get lost <laughs> because, because it had all that um, resistance from technology and, and mainly we're just like everybody else. We don't like stuff we're not used to. And so, but now we got used to it. And, and so we're very open-minded to doing hybrids, keeping it. We're, we're having the courtroom retrofitted so that one or more of the parties or one of the more judge, judges can appear virtually if that's what needs to happen. So we, we can do it either all virtually, all in person, and now we're gonna be able to do it uh, kind of a hybrid of both. So that, that we learned a lot there. The thing it doesn't do is there, there is a human dynamic um, between the judges, sometimes on the bench. Um, I, I can only, you think you can look at multiple screens on a Zoom call or a WebEx call, but you really can't. You kind of are using peripheral vision, if you know what I mean. Yep. And, but on the bench, I can really feel if somebody to my right is itching to get in there and ask a question. Sometimes I'll back off because I can tell they're really wanting to get in there. Um, it's been a tradition. Uh, my mom, when she first uh, saw me at the Court of Appeals, she thought it was kind of a rude thing, but we interrupt lawyers mercilessly um, because we have questions. We want them asked. We'll just interrupt them mid-sentence. That has actually not happened virtually. Huh. Um, we now raise our hand, and if they don't see us raising our hand because they're too buried in their notes, and eventually we might say, excuse me, I'd like to ask a question. Um, and lawyers want to know our questions because uh, it, it's a fool for a lawyer who doesn't want to get into the judge's judge's brain if they can. But anyway, that's that's those kind of things, those dynamics. And like I said, we can't see the opposing counsel. We used to be able to watch the lawyer and see them wince or smile or whatever. And um, we just don't see that anymore. So there's that that human side's missing. And most of the judges would like to get back to that. Yeah. Um, but like I said, we're, we're not closed minded to think that if it's a benefit, we can keep doing what we're doing. Yeah, I this morning, you know, we we heard the cases virtually and 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 absolutely it was different, but so interesting and actually just focusing on one person at a time rather than the scope of the room was right. really fascinating. It's different, isn't it? Yeah, very different. Yes. Well, thank you for sharing that. And um, I have another 
question that I'd love to ask you about. And uh, one of the things that's always so striking to me and so inspiring uh, when I am at these events and hear the oral arguments is the 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 care the attention um the sensitivity and the depth of uh the civil discourse that we witness um from all of you and that's been a topic that's come up on campus quite a lot and of course has been in the media uh, a lot in the last year is is about the sort of uh decay of civil discourse and um that's something i know we're addressing on campus. And I wondered if you might comment on your thoughts and opinions about how, how from your perspective uh, in your career, that plays out and what advice you might have uh, for a campus or anyone wanting to kind of maybe elevate the, the state of civil discourse in their organization. Sure. I'll try to unpack all that. Um, <laughs> Sorry, uh, no. <laughs> no, no, no. It's it's a great question. It just it it as you're stating your question, it was bringing up all sorts of thoughts. But but the first one was uh, I was thinking of a speech given by Chief Justice Matthew Durant when the pro, new Provo Courthouse, it's a ninety thousand square foot courthouse in Provo, has got you know stacks of courtrooms and a lot of business gets done there. Um, he was dedicating the building and giving a speech, and he remarked on the irony that that we've come to a place where the most civil dialogue that happens in society is the space that we set aside for our most vigorous disputes, the courts. Mm-hmm. And it and it is remarkable um, because we. And I guess the answer is why it's this way is we don't tolerate incivility. Right. Um, and we'll we'll interrupt you and tell you to stop that. Like if you're yelling or you use profanity or you say something disparaging. In fact, um, it's kind of against, there's not a rule, but it's definitely against the unwritten rules and it's enforced that you don't talk to the other lawyer. You talk to the court. Right. And if you start talking to the other lawyer, we'll interrupt you and say, please address the court, not the other side. But if you use disparaging remarks, we'll just shut you down. And if you if you refuse to play by the rules, we will silence you. We will you will you will lose your right to talk. We're happy to listen to every argument you have to make or that you want to make, but it must be done in a civil way. We're just not. Uh, going to accept it any other way. And um, we understand that civil discourse makes for the best decision making. Mm-hmm. And, and so does absolute, you know, as close as we can get to absolute truth. So you can spew whatever you want in a courtroom, but the next question from the judge is show me your proof. Right. Um, and so those two things together makes it a an interesting space and now a, a kind of a beautiful space. So I I don't know that there's an answer to um, how we get that out in the greater society other than self-policing and, and people being self-aware of um, the, you know, their own actions and how, how they communicate. You know, the, the moment that you realize that anger is a weakness and that you actually, and you can go look, there's great papers on this. You actually think worse when you're mad. 
Yeah. Um, and your brain's actually impaired. You're basically brain damaged. Right. So if you let yourself get angry, you're not thinking straight. And and I think the moment you realize that, um, I don't, you know, go Buddhist, whatever you want, get some Tao, get centered, get peaceful, you'll be a better thinker. And in the law, you'll actually end up winning more because yeah. you're thinking better. Right. Um, but one of the other things is, is judges uh, have, we, we at a court of appeals, we say that we don't take ourselves seriously, but we take the work very seriously. It's a great place, the personalities, but we don't, we don't hold back at all. If we tell, if we think somebody's not right, we'll just say it. I, I can tell you a story of, I was brand new on the court. There were three judges on the panel. One of the other judges was brand new as well. And the, the other judge was very, very seasoned. And we get back in the conference and he was the proposed assigned writer. So he said, this is what I think. And he had three main points and then he got done and he turned to me and he said, Dave, what do you think? And I said, well, I'm sorry, but I categorically disagree with everything you just said. Wow. And he didn't miss a beat. He turned to the other colleague and said, what do you think? And she hesitated and she said, well, I'm with Dave. The interesting thing is he didn't at that point say, well, then I'm out of here or, or you got, you know, the usual thing we see online nowadays, which is, you know, you're an idiot. Um, instead, he said, well, tell me why. And so we explained the whole thing. And he says, that's interesting. I didn't, I really didn't see it that way. Um, it kind of sounds like you might be right. Let me try to write it up that way. And if I can do it, then we'll all be on the same page. Two weeks later, he came back and he said, here's my draft. And boy, you guys were right. Hmm. But it's just because we we never take uh, for granted or we never assume that we're right. We, we, we have what we call the lean. Um, people say, what do you think of this case? We'll say, this is, I'm leaning this way, right? That's the lean. We never say this is where I am and I am not going to move. Right. Because because once you announce that your position is intractable, now it's about you. Yes. You know? Right. Now I got to defend myself. I can't change my mind. That's one of the good parts about the fact that all of our deliberations are behind closed doors and not out in public um, because we have the freedom to say, oh, dang, I, I was really convinced of one thing, but turns out I'm wrong. Right. And so, yeah. Well, I incredibly respect that. Uh, I do think it's just beautiful, the space that, ha that, that, that comes from this. And I, I so love hearing about that kind of discourse, that kind of, um, thoughtful process and, uh, being able to have your mind changed and listen to others. I, I just think that that is amazing. And, and it's such a, um, inspiring thing for us all to hear right now. So thank you for that. No problem. I just, I don't, but I don't think it's a one-off. I think if we all want to, we could live our lives this way. Yeah. Yeah. But we can't, we can't, we can't do it the way the online discourse is usually happening. Yeah. Well, let's see what happens. I, I think it's a, a beautiful thing to think about. And yeah. now it's time for some more music. Excellent. <laughs> so you sh shared with me an artist who I uh, didn't know. And we have a, a, a cover of My Favorite Things, the, the very oh, yeah. famous uh, song uh, by Joey Alexander. Mm -hmm. uh, tell me how you came across Joey. He's so um, young. Yeah. 
Well, the main thing is uh, once again, YouTube. Um, I have a treadmill that I should use more than I do, but I, le- I let my YouTube run pretty freely. And so the algorithm, based on what I've listened to in the past, is suggesting stuff. Um, Joey is from Indonesia, and you may know a very famous trumpet player who's back east, uh, Wynton Marcellus. <laughs> yes. I th- right? <laughs> Wynton found Joey on YouTube oh. and flew him out. And I think that Joey's first gig was at the Lincoln Center. And when he got done, I'm trying to remember the tune he played. I think it was Midnight Sun. He just got up and walked off stage. He was 12 years old. And the band stood up and clapped for him and went and had to say, hey, come back here. They don't they don't stand and clap for everybody. Right. And he's just amazing. Um, I saw him in Salt Lake two years ago. He's going to play this spring if you Ah. follow the jazz um you know the jazz monthly jazz concert that gets put on at the Capitol theater right um i think he's january or february okay so he'll be here he's all of 15 now of course i mean i was so surprised i mean because i they started and i was hearing it and then i was doing other things when i got the music going and then i looked at the screen and i just thought who is this kid you know because Sometimes with these young artists, you don't, you maybe don't hear the maturity that you hear in Joey. He's such an old soul. You close your eyes and he sounds like Oscar Peterson or Kenny Barron or one of the more, you know, way seasoned. Yeah jazz players well we uh because we want to get back to talking we won't listen to the whole tune but this is joey alexander who you can find on youtube and this is his version of my favorite things you're listening to ksuu thunder 91.1 
All right, everyone. Well, we could listen to that all day, but I'm going to fade that out and tell you a little bit more again. That's Joey Alexander, and the, it's a cover of My Favorite Things. Just an amazing artist and depth. But speaking of a musical artist, uh, we, we have Judge Mortensen here, and you are a musical artist as well. Uh, and I know your background from our conversations, uh, but can you share with us a little bit about your musical life? Well, um, my family's pretty musical. My father was a professional drummer and a high school music teacher. Um, when I was young, he would be gone every Friday and Saturday night playing gigs in Oakland or San Francisco. We lived in the Bay Area, California. Um, so I was mostly raised on jazz. Um, I really didn't know about the existence of rock and roll really that much until I was maybe 12. Um, wow. Just because my house was full of jazz and I would go to live jazz shows. And um, I was grew up in Concord, California, where the Concord Jazz label is. And back in those days, they had the Concord Jazz Festival. I know it well. Just down the street. And we used to go to that all the time. I think my first concert was Buddy Rich at age three. Wow. Um, and so... That's that's the house I was raised in, and I, uh, of course, had musical training, young piano, like all other tortured children, <laughs> and uh, played the trombone in bands all the way through uh, college, and eventually um, switched to the law so that I could feed my family. But um, you know, it's 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 still a a thing in my uh, soul, I guess is the way you'd say it. Yeah. Uh, we were just talking while the music was playing that that you have music playing in the office all the time. Yeah, and but you have to be re you have to be ready for it because uh, I can switch from classical to um, pretty hard rock in in a nanosecond, um, just depending on my mood. So I could go from Handel to Joey Alexander to Pink Floyd to uh, um, punk rock. Yeah country music all one after another so you have to hold on to your chair if you're near my office and or i'll pull the guitar off the wall and start playing well that's what i was going to ask you so you have a guitar and you play in the office sometimes what yeah. does that do for you well just if i if i if i just need to sit and think um then i'll just pull the guitar off and start playing while i'm thinking that before i decide you know, what to do next as far as sometimes you just need to think things through and I need to kind of mull it over for five minutes. And so uh, the guitar gives my fingers something to do while my brain's going. So you're able to think uh, and play or have music going while thinking about other things, it sounds like. I Yeah, it's strange. My wife thinks it's really weird. Um, I If I'm reading, um, I prefer to have the television on, like really? with the document like with a documentary huh. or something like that. Um, I wonder why. Do you do you have any sense of what that's about? Uh, maybe I have a hard time paying attention. <laughs> I, don't I don't I don't know. Um, the, the music, you know, there can be music that's distracting if it's a piece that I performed and it was hard or um, this will be kind of strange. If, if you have musicians, you'll know what I'm talking about. But I was a horn player. And so if I'm listening to a jazz tune and the soloist goes real high, um, involuntarily, um, I will uh, brace my abdomen muscles. Oh, yeah. I'm, I'm 
time doing breathing. the breathing with him. Yeah. And I'll yeah. even sometimes purse my lips a little bit. Just wow. so I'll catch myself doing it. I think, well, that's weird. Yeah. Um, but I played all those years. I mean, I um, during my beginning of college, I was actually a music major and uh, I was like in seven performing groups and I yeah. toured Europe with a jazz band. And so I played a lot. So those, that muscle memory hasn't gone anywhere in 30 years. Do you feel like your musical training or musical knowledge contributes to what you do as a judge? I mean, is there any uh, parallels, takeaways, bridges? Well, there there is a little bit um, because what my whole life now centers around language, I'm trying to communicate. And I think there's a pretty close connection between language and music. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that music has a cadence um, and good writing has a cadence. Um, everybody knows bad. Most people don't know good writing when they see it because they don't notice it, but everybody knows bad writing when they see it because it hurts. Yeah. Like you have to read that sentence twice to see what that person's saying. Right. Um, so, um, that kind of thing. I, I think there's a musical element to language. So in, in that, I think there's probably a little bit of parallel. Fantastic. Well, I think we can get to one more of the two that you sent and one mm-hmm. is Jacob Collier and the other is Snarky Puppy. I I'd oh, love to, I know it's hard to pick between those they're both amazing. But I think I'd love to know more about why you like Jacob Collier and how you kind of came to know his music and why you sent this one to me. Which one did I send you? I can't remember. So it was the the Tiny Desk concert. Oh yeah. Well, cuz um and it's the latter tiny guess. It's where he's playing four parts, right? Yep. Mm-hmm. So, so this kid, uh, he's a kid. He's 23 or whatever he is. He already has multiple Grammys. And in fact, if you watch closely, he plays the Grammy in the oh, first right. song. He actually knocks the bell of the Grammy and it's in tune. Um, he's he's just on a different planet. Um, and I, I know that sometimes he goes a little bit overboard with things. Um, but everything else he's doing is just so awesome. And, and he actually mixed that video himself. He did it all. That's his, that's his music room in his house in London. Mm-hmm. And he does this whole thing for the tiny desk series at NPR. And I just, it just kind of blew my mind. I don't, I don't know. Yeah. Cool. Well, we'll play a little bit of that. And then when we come back, I just have my last final question. Our time has gone by so quickly. But this is um, Jacob Collier's uh, part of his Tiny Desk concert. And again, we'll just give you a little taste of it so you can hear what we're talking about. You're listening to KSUU Thunder 91.1. That I feel when you put your arms over me. There must be something I could say to make you stay. Oh, hi. Hello. I love the way that you get in the groove when you walk with me. Only me. Cause every time I think about it, I can't stop thinking about it. You were all I need. All I need. I love thinking of all the kisses you could give me if I came right, right now. There must be something I could say to make you stay. Oh hi, oh hi. I love the illumination you bring to all the ordinary things I found. 
was uh, Jacob Collier in his Tiny Desk uh, home concert. And one of the things that is absolutely so cool about that, you definitely have to check it out. The the visual entity of what he's done on stage is his room looks completely seamless. And then there's just four versions of him in it. So definitely check that check that out. Um, we are in the studio with Judge Dave Mortensen, and we've been talking about the Utah appeals court process, but we've also been talking about music. Uh, and the the one that we didn't get to was Snarky Puppy. And so I'd love to know, why do you love Snarky Puppy? I mean, I also love Snarky Puppy, but what is it about them? Is it the brass uh, I I like um, I like the improvisation. I like their backstory. It's probably apocryphal and not even true, but I heard I I know part of it's true, and that's the bass player who formed the group. He they were all going to North Texas State, a big uh, music school, and they were sign or auditioning for combos, and he didn't get in one. Right. So he posts this thing. So I don't know how many of the people in the band are rejects who didn't that the teachers didn't pick to to win. But mm-hmm. now this group's, you know, winning Grammys because they had to go out on their own and do their thing. I love that story. And I just love what they, I like the improvisation. Yeah, North Texas is is famous for having uh, jazz bands on the clock. One o'clock jazz band, two o'clock jazz band, three o'clock band, four o'clock band. Yeah. And they all have different kind of levels. And if you don't make one of those bands, then... I suppose you could make Snarky Puppy. <laughs> yeah. I don't know if that's true, but I like the story either way. It's a great story. Well, I have one last question for you, sure. and it's a question I ask all of my guests, and it's just sort of a fun, playful question, and that's what's turning you on this week? And it could be anything. It could be another musical artist. It could be a book you're reading, a, a, a TV show or a movie or a favorite food. So judge what is turning you on this week? Well, not surprisingly, it's a little bit of music and it comes and goes, but I'm this week back on to the Punch Brothers, Bluegrass. Awesome. Oh my gosh. So has that been playing in the office? Uh, that has been playing in the office, yes. Do you yeah. have a favorite album? Um, I've been mainly watching um, some YouTube full-length concerts. Oh, cool. They they do covers have you ever watched some of the covers uh-huh. of classical music? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That stuff's amazing. They do Bach. They yeah. do um, uh, Debussy. Debussy, yeah. That's so amazing. Spectacular. So that. 
Yeah, they're fantastic. If you if you haven't had a chance to check them out, and again, just kind of a a bit of genre bending, and it seems that I mean your the depth and breadth of your ear is is drawn to that, which is awesome. I like anything anything that's awesome. <laughs> That's fantastic. Well, I want to say thank you so much for the time that you spent today. I, I know it's above and beyond to to sort of spend the time sharing um, in this outreach with the university and with this program. So thank you so much for being here. No problem. All right, everyone. Well, that's it for us. We will see you next week on the Apex Hour. Thanks so much for listening to the Apex Hour here on KSUU Thunder 91.1. Come find us again next Thursday at 3 p.m. for more conversations with the visiting guests at Southern Utah University and new music to discover for your next playlist. And in the meantime, we would love to see you at our events on campus. To find out more, check out suu.edu slash apex. Until next week, this is Lynn Vartan saying goodbye from the Apex Hour here on Thunder 91.1.